0: those of you who are visiting for the first time, my name's Char, and we are currently going through the Gospel of John here on Sunday mornings, and we are looking at the Gospel of John with this theme, Life in His Name. Now, this theme that we chose for this gospel, we did not cleverly come up with this ourselves, but John actually gives us the theme of his book in the Chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. There, John writes Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, or excuse me, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John, the author of this gospel, makes it very clear that he has not written an exhaustive biography of the life and times of Jesus, but he has handpicked these stories, these signs, these conversations in order that the reader might believe two things specifically about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. He is God's one and only anointed king who will rule and reign over God's kingdom And that he is the son of God, God's dear beloved son whom he has sent into the world to rescue and redeem it. John believes that if we hold on to these things, if we receive these things, we will experience what he calls life in the name of Jesus. It's described elsewhere in this gospel as deep, everlasting or eternal life, fullness of life this is what john desires for all that hear this gospel this is actually the message of this gospel that we might experience life in the name of jesus and that we might offer that same life to those around us now we have been looking at these incredible chapters in um John chapters 13 through 16, for a number of weeks, Uh, they're often called the upper room discourse. And this is where Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, the night before his crucifixion, he spends the evening with his disciples. And we don't know if it's only 11 the 11 there, or if it is more in the room, but he shares with them almost, as it were, like his last will and testament. He's really summing up all of his work, and he's, as it were, passing the baton to his disciples that they might carry on his work that he has been doing In these chapters, Jesus has told the disciples that he's going away, he's returning to the Father, and this is kind of shorthand for Jesus finishing the mission that the Father has sent him on to bring life to the world, to bring humanity back into the love of God. Jesus will accomplish this by way of the cross, through death, resurrection, and then ascending back to the Father. Jesus, in his absence, has promised the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the friend come from the Father, from the Son, who will remind disciples of the words, of the works, and the ways of Jesus so that God's mission to the world, his great love being put on display, will continue through Jesus' disciples. Jesus has also warned his disciples, that because of their identity in him, because of their shared mission in him, they will experience incredible hostility from the world. But he has encouraged them, abide in me. This is the way that you go forward by sticking close to me, by putting deep roots down into me, by making me your deep, intimate friend. This is the only way you will be sustained. This is the only way that you will bear lasting fruit is by abiding in me. Now we come to John 17 And John 17 is almost as if Jesus is taking these chapters, verses, or excuse me, chapters 13 through 16, and he is now almost making them a prayer. Or, if you like, that Jesus is taking the whole of his work and witness that has been recorded in this gospel, and he is releasing it into the hands of the Father as a prayer. He's committing all of it, his work, the future work of his disciples, to his father in prayer. But this prayer also serves then as a kind of summary of the theology of this gospel. And the theology of this gospel finds its source in the great love of God and the heart of the father sending his son into the world to give life in and through his name. And even the way that this prayer kind of is laid out, it's very similar to what we find in many of the stories within John, that someone has an experience with Jesus, is changed by that experience, and then they turn around and they share with others this experience of Jesus. Jesus, we were saying this last week, it's almost you could take each um, of these little stories within John, and you could see them almost as, with each conversation, Jesus is revealing the Father, and then many times those to whom the Father's revealed, they turn around and they share that revelation with others. Remember the woman at the well of Sychar; she says to the surrounding community of Samaria, "Come, meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah?" And the result of their testimony is that people come to Jesus and they say, truly, this is the Savior of the world. They believe in Jesus and they experience through him life in his name. The same could be said about the man who's born blind, He is touched by Jesus. He is revealed through Jesus the true love of the Father. His life is transformed. And then he stands before the 70 elders of Israel and he says, listen, this is what I know. I once was blind and now I see. And he gives us testimony of how his life has been touched by Jesus. This is this pattern that we see again and again throughout this gospel, is that the love of God is revealed, cultivated, and then shared with the world. And... This is really, I think, what God desires for us to assimilate as we make our way through this gospel. I think many times in our Christian experience we can stop at simply the knowledge that we are loved by God. We can stop kind of with our own transformation but then fail to step into this furthering of cultivating the love of God in a community with others who are God's people. Or even beyond that, we can maybe stop even there. We go the first step, the second step, but then we forget that there's a whole world out there that doesn't know the great love of God. But this is the desire of this gospel, that we would live in the love of God that we would cultivate the love of God with one another, and then that we would show the great love of God to anyone and everyone around us, to the world around us. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit into last week, and this teaching will serve almost as kind of a part two to last week's teaching. So, if you weren't here last week, Um, I'm going to help you a little bit, but I would also encourage you to go back, if you've been following us in these teachings, I would encourage you to go back, if you weren't here last week, and to listen to our first teaching through John 17. I think it will make uh, this study just well-rounded, the two of them together. You guys following me? Great. Okay. So we said last week that the heart of this prayer, uh, that there's really three parts to this prayer. It's a three-part structure, and it begins by Jesus simply talking to the Father about his own mission and praying that the, Lord, uh, the Father would complete the work that Jesus has done, his work and his witness, his cultivation of his disciples, that the Father would glorify the Son Secondly, Jesus begins to pray just for his immediate disciples, and this is all that he has taught them in chapters 13 through 16. He's praying that the Father would take this up and he would bring it to fruition. And then lastly, Jesus prays for all disciples, and we mentioned this last week. You know, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're included in this prayer, and Jesus is praying for you. And he's praying, what is he praying? He's praying certain things. He's praying that we would be protected by the power of his name. He's praying that we would be one, that the people of God would be unified and that we would live as one, that we would live in God, that we would live in his love. He prays that we would experience his own deep and lasting joy. The same measure of his joy would be at work in us. He prays specifically that we would be protected from the evil one, And finally, he prays that we would be sanctified, set apart, or devoted by the truth. These are the things that Jesus is praying. And yet, we said this last week, within these prayers, Jesus prays six times and in six different ways that his disciples would be one, that they would be unified. But we talked about this last week, it's not just unity for the sake of unity, but it is this oneness that Jesus has been talking about all throughout John's gospel. I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The works that I do, these are the works that the Father has sent me to do. The words that I say, these words are from the Father. Jesus has been speaking again and again throughout this gospel about his oneness, his deep, deep intimacy with the Father. And what he is praying in this prayer is that you and I, disciples of Jesus, would experience that we would live in that oneness. That each one of God's people, that every disciple of Jesus might enter into a life lived in the inner life of God. And I think I said this last week, but that we would, as it were, we'd get comfortable there. You might remember last week I mentioned this quote by Brendan Manning, and I love this quote because I feel like it's almost like, wow, do I dare? But he says, define yourself as one radically loved by God. It's interesting. I wonder if we were to even take a poll this morning And when I were to ask you, when you hear the term humanity, what's the first word that comes to mind? Many times as Christians, and depending maybe upon our theological background or the denomination that we were raised in, we might think sinful, corrupt, evil. Evil. And, of course, we could tell many stories of how humans are sinful. They do evil things, how they're broken. But, you know, the story of the Bible does not begin there. The story of the Bible begins further back with creation and that God created the world out of His great, great love and desire to share that love with humanity. And that humans are actually dearly loved by God and even beautiful to God. That that is first and foremost who we are. Now, of course, sin has come and it has marred that. It has taken us in a totally different direction. And for many of us, that image of, well, excuse me, for all of us, that image of God has almost been, you know, caved in. But in Christ, it is redeemed. It is brought back on track. We are the dearly loved people of God. This is who we are. This is our fundamental identity. And Jesus' prayer is that we would own it, that we would live deep into this identity. Listen to what he says. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. This is the unity that Jesus is praying for and I just for a moment we don't we're not going to get deep into this but just think about how Jesus has total and complete trust in the goodness of his father all throughout this prayer he's just entrusting everything that he has done the way that Jesus speaks about the father all throughout the gospel of John there is no dark side no shadow side to God he is totally, completely confident in the Father's love for him and totally and completely confident in the Father's love for the world. In fact, that is exactly why Jesus is here, because of the great love of the Father. Now, we talked about this last week. But the theme of this great prayer and the theme of the overall message of John's gospel is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world to reveal the great love of the Father and to bring humanity back into that love in the inner life of God. What Jesus calls being one as he and the Father are one. Now, disciples are to live in that love, and now he sends disciples out into the world with that same identity and mission that he has been sent on, as beloved sons and daughters, to reveal the love of the Father and to invite others into God's great love. This is really what witness, mission, These are terms that we use as Christians, talking about sharing with people the gospel, the good news, doing works of justice and mercy. This is really what it is, is simply revealing the Father's love for the world. A few weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 15. I don't know if you remember um, those studies, but we talked about Jesus' amazing invitation for disciples to just abide in him. And we talked about how, according to this passage, the lifelong task of a disciple of Jesus is not mission. It's not just like, God wants to know what you can do for Him. How useful are you to Him? But what God is most concerned with is that we know Him, that we walk in deep, intimate friendship with Him that we enjoy Him. God's main desire for us is fellowship. And we said that the lifelong task of a disciple then is our relationship and discipleship to Jesus, not the mission of Jesus. But as as we abide in Jesus, as we live in that identity, the fascinating thing, the amazing thing is that mission, good works, love will flow from that identity. Everything else flows from that identity and relationship. And I just want to give a moment this morning just to emphasize this once again, that our task as the people of God is to live in the inner life of God or to abide in Jesus. And from that ongoing experience to invite others to join in this life of God. Now, I'm referencing past studies a lot this morning, so if you're fairly new here, you might have to go back and dig into the archives a little bit. Uh, But early on in John's Gospel, Pastor Jordan shared a teaching with us um, looking at the life of John the Baptist. And he talks about how he was a witness. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And Jordan emphasized that witness can actually only be done by personal experience. You cannot witness something that you yourself have not experienced. You cannot make known the love of God if you, first and foremost, have not experienced the love of God. Paul the Apostle says that those who belong to Jesus have had this experience where the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. And believers in Jesus have this experience where we just know that we know that we know that we are loved by God. And then our inclination becomes to cry out to God, Almighty God, Father, Father, Father. That becomes our new mode of operation. We are assured of God's great love for us. It is only through this assurance that we can actually make known the love of God to those around us. One of my favorite pastors and theologians is named Leslie Newbegin. And he was also uh, what they call a missiologist, which is just kind of a fancy word for somebody who studies religious missions and their methods and purposes but he was an english missionary and pastor in india for 40 years but it, even someone who studied and immersed their life in missions in evangelism in witness in church planting new Begin always emphasized that mission was first about being it was first about being it's about being children of god It's about being the new creation. It's about being a distinct community, a community that practices the way of Jesus, a community that shares with one another the love of God by loving and serving one another as Jesus has loved and served us. It's that being first and foremost. And he would say that the doing and the going flow from this. And I love how he's summarizing mission in this way. It's first and foremost about our identity as dearly loved children of God. And this being actually helps define both the what and why of mission. Do you ever hear pastors, or maybe you read it in, you know, theological books, and mission, 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 mission. mission. Anybody? Think like, what is this? Why are we always talking about the mission? What do we think we are? You know, mission impossible? What is this? And it kind of is like this hokey word that we use. And sometimes I've personally, I feel like it can be gimmicky and cliche. But what we are talking about, we're talking about the mission that Jesus was sent on. The eternal Son of God came into the world to accomplish bringing the love of God to the world. That's the mission that we're talking about. So when we live in this identity, though, it helps us define the what and why of mission. What is mission? Essentially, it is revealing the love of the Father, both in word and deed. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all of Scripture comes from the book of Acts, where Peter is in the house of a centurion named Cornelius, and he says this. Well, you know, most of you have heard about Jesus, he was a man who went about doing good and healing all who were afflicted by the devil for God was with him. I want you to think about that description of Jesus. It's not, he was the son of God. He is the savior of the world. Like sometimes we just kind of like throw out these statements, but think about what Jesus did. He revealed the love of the Father for people that thought they were so far out of those boundaries. You think about the motley crew that followed Jesus around. You think about so many of his parables are about going into the highways and the byways, going to the dark places of the cities and inviting people to the feast of the Father. Every single one of Jesus' parables and stories is outlandish in its expression of God's great love. His miracles go above and beyond what is needed. There are 12 baskets left over of bread. Why? Because there is an abundance of resources in God's kingdom and he generously shares with any and with all who are in need. This is who the Father is. And then this is what mission is, to simply reveal the love of the Father in both words, words of affirmation, telling people the truest thing about them, and also in deeds, deeds of kindness, Deeds of service, deeds of generosity, deeds of mercy and justice. But it also answers the why of mission. Why mission? Because humans are separated from the God who made them, from the God who loves them. Leslie Newbegin put it this way. He says, the logic of mission is this. The true meaning of the human story has been made known in Jesus. Because it is the truth, it must be shared universally. It cannot be a private opinion. When we share it with all people, whether in word or deed, we give them the opportunity to know the truth about themselves, to know who they are, because they can know the true story of which their lives are a part Mission, being rooted in our identity, really is a strong conviction that we have here at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And this is really what we try to encapsulate in our mission statement. You hear us say this often. We seek to be a Jesus-formed community on mission. Maybe some of you have heard me teach on this, right? We believe that formation in the way of Jesus, that means just living as a disciple of Jesus, being in Jesus' presence, knowing Jesus, practicing His way of life, plus living in community with other Jesus followers, centering our lives around the the life of Jesus, flows into or equals mission. As we do the first two, it will flow into simply showing God's love and inviting others to join in. Maybe another way we could put this is living in God's love, practicing God's love and community flows into revealing God's love to others. That's what we want this community to be about. That we would be a community of God's people that are so deeply rooted and grounded in who we are, that we are the beloved children of God, that we live as brothers and sisters, caring for, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, and that as we scatter that we take this identity as beloved children out into the world and we share with the world, you are beloved too. You're just a long way from home. Inviting them back into the love of God. It's interesting, Leslie Newbegin he actually said as much. He said, the most important contribution which the church can make to a new social order, making you know, affecting the culture around us, affecting the cities that God has called us to, he says, is to be itself a new social order. Live as the people of God. Live out the kingdom of God. He says, if the local congregation understands its true character as a holy priesthood for the sake of the world, then there is a point of growth for a new social order. It is in local congregations that the first shoots of new creation life can be nourished so as to subvert principalities and powers of culture the way things are, the brokenness we see in the world around us. He says, especially growing economic, financial, and technical forces brought on by globalization. But this line is the one that gets me every time. The church must be visible and recognizable as a community that lives out the Father's love in every city. And so, the chief contribution of the church to the renewing of social order is to be itself a new social order. That line is an incredible vision to grow into. That this church community would be visible and recognizable as a community that lives out the Father's love in our cities. Where are the broken places of our cities? Where and who are the broken people? God sends us as ambassadors of his love. And not just ambassadors, witnesses, recipients, vessels into which he has poured his love into in order to be poured out into the world. I love the way that Henry Nouwen put this. He wrote this beautiful book called The Life of the Beloved. I think I referenced it last week. And I would, yeah, I would probably just encourage those of you who you struggle with this idea of being beloved by God, that God doesn't just love you, He actually likes you. This might be an incredible resource for you just to cement you deep into the love of God. But he says this when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness instead of making us feel we're better more precious or valuable than others our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others this is that great joy of being chosen the discovery that others are chosen as well. In the house of God, there are many mansions. He's quoting Jesus. There is a place for everyone, a unique, special place. Once we deeply trust that we ourselves are precious in God's eyes, we are able to recognize the preciousness of others and their unique places in God's heart. Simply put, mission is revealing, making known, putting on display the love of God and inviting others into the love of God through trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you, if you've studied missions, you get our missionary prayer book, you go to the missions meetings, you follow all these things, you're like, well, Char, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I know that. I agree it is and I think actually sometimes we make it way too complicated and that's why I want to give us a very broad definition of mission because I think it actually opens our understanding to the multitude of opportunities around us. If mission and witness is simply that I just make known the love of God, wow, I can do that everywhere and I can do that with anyone. I don't have to go to the ends of the earth. I don't have to go to Mexico. I don't have to go to, you know, these places, and don't get me wrong, that's fine. If God opens doors and opportunities to do that, great, but God calls you right where you are to the people that are right in front of you. They need to know and experience God's great love. Witnessing or evangelism cannot be relegated to one specific thing. It is as wide as the world is diverse. In fact, I know I've been talking about Leslie Newbegin a lot, but in, um, I can't remember which book this is from, but it's referenced in this book called The Church and Its Vocation. That is the name of the book, written by Michael Goheen. But Leslie Newbegin, I mentioned this, he was a missionary from England to India for 40 years, and he was a bishop over uh, an area called, or a city called Madari. And during his time of being the bishop there, they got a request from a local village that they had never done any outreach or evangelism in for 25, ba- or 25 families wanted to be baptized. And Leslie Newbegin was just like, well, how did this happen? And so he begins to do some research. Listen to what he finds. First of all, a Christian engineer visits that village to do work on a water pump. He does excellent work, and he happens to mention to a few people, he's a Christian. That's it. Next, someone from that village was visiting another village and went to a religious bookseller. They bought a copy of the Gospel of John and began to read it and began to share it with other people. After that, an evangelist came through the village, preached a fiery sermon, and left behind a track. You guys know what those are, those little, you know, like paper evangelism Pass them out, asking, if you die tonight, where will you go? Right? Classic. These villagers decide this might be a more serious matter than they had considered before. And so they ask a Christian congregation to send someone that could answer their questions. So the congregation sends an injured, unemployed laborer to spend a month with this village, just simply answering their questions. And the result is. 25 families giving their lives to Jesus Christ wanting to be baptized in the name of Jesus New Begin concluded this If you had assembled the engineer, the religious bookseller, the evangelist, the laborer for a seminar on missionary methods, they would probably have disagreed with each other. He adds quite violently. I didn't put that in here. Um, Unknown to each other, each had done faithfully the work for which the Holy Spirit had given equipment. The strategy was not in any human hands. It is the Holy Spirit who is the primary missionary, our role is secondary. Again, I I said this a moment ago, but I think just sometimes we just radically overcomplicate what it is to be a witness. It is simply to make known the love of God, to put it on display. Sometimes we can be just so limited in our scope of witness, we think it looks just like one thing. It looks like going down to Huntington Beach Pier on a Friday night. Maybe, I mean, you know, you just read through like what New Beginnings talk about. It's just vast. Who knows? God can use anything, and He often does. How kind of God that He would even sometimes use our feeble, sometimes ignorant even attempts. It is in his kindness and his desire to reveal himself to people that he does this. But God truly calls us in the place we are to the people, excuse me, right in front of us in our day-to-day living to make known his great love. That's the family that you're in. The neighbors and neighborhood in which you live. Your job, your employer and employer, Coworkers, your unique opportunities are not accidental. God has actually placed you there. Not for yourself, not for your own comfort, or the benefits that this job gives, the salary, it's not for that. It is so that you might make known what you have experienced, the deep, deep love of Jesus. That's why God has put you there. He's put you there to showcase His incredible love. Sometimes we do this through our excellent work and reputation. You know, there are many in this room who are just of a mild temperament. And you're a hard worker, you're a diligent worker, you put everything into your work. That's excellent to do. That, I believe, is actually what God calls us to do as Christians. That we would take all the resources that he has given us and that we would work them to the best of our ability to glorify him you know martin luther actually said this he said how does the christian cobbler glorify god in his work he says he doesn't do it by putting crosses on his shoes he does it by making an excellent shoe excellent work in our vocations glorifies, and honors God. You think about this engineer. He did excellent work, and everybody just knew through conversation, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. That was enough to plant a seed that God watered and was brought to fruition. Some of you are just that kind of person that is quiet, keeps to themselves, works hard. God bless you. Keep going. You don't have to become a loud, boisterous person in order to do evangelism, many times, actually, that turns people away. And what people are looking for is a life that is attractive. Someone who is at peace, someone who has this residing hope within them, they're looking for kindness. And often the gospel simply begins with kindness. That's what Paul says. When the kindness and love of our God appeared, not by any works that we have done, he saved us and called us with a holy calling. The gospel begins with kindness. Other times, our witness will be through explicitly telling our story or even telling the gospel story. Actually, I actually had a friend from years ago reach out to me this week, just so randomly, and he asked me these questions. Char, how was it that you came to believe what you believe? And so I got to tell him just a little bit of my story. He knows a lot of it already. I got to fill in more details, and then I got to share with him just again this is what I believe about humans. This is what I believe about God's great love. This is what I believe about the work of Christ. And this is what I believe God will do. God will restore and renew all things in the end and we will be with God in peace living on this earth. I got to share the great story of the Bible with him. I did not initiate that. It just fell into my lap. Sometimes it works like that. When I read this story from Leslie Newbegin, it reminds me of that beautiful parable that Jesus told about the sower. The sower went out to sow. And again, you know, I was mentioning a moment ago just how Jesus is constantly putting God's, like, overwhelming love, like, on display and you think about this like nobody sows seed like this not in modern time not in ancient times. but the sower is like wow you know it's just going everywhere like places that will never grow and you think wow god just throws his love out to the ends of the earth people that will never receive god's love he still puts it on display he still wants many 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 offers to be given to people he know will never receive his love. This is how great the love of God. And it's as diverse, evangelism as diverse as the soils are diverse in this story. God calls us where we are to the people right in front of us. Just go where you are. Abide in Jesus. Live in the inner life of God and put that on display where you are. That's witnessing. That's evangelism. Michael Goheen, in his book, The Drama of Scripture, he says this witness means embodying. In my life, God's renewing power, God's great love, in politics and citizenship, in economics and business and education and scholarship, family and neighborhood, media and art, leisure and play. He says, it's not just that we carry out evangelism in these areas of life. That is important, but not enough. It means that the way we live, and I just add this, living in and living out the love of God, as citizens, consumers, students, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and friends, witnesses to the restoring love and power of God. That our families and our marriages, even our singleness, the resources that God has given us, the place where He has put us, the opportunities that He's given us, these are opportunities for us to embody the love of God, to put it on display. Sometimes Our witness, our evangelism will be deep and intimate and personal, like Jesus' conversations with Nicodemus or the woman at the well. Other times, it's just faithful presence, ministry of presence, or good character shown over the long haul. At other times, it will be our story. God is the one, though, He is the great missionary. He is the one pursuing the world with his great love and he is simply inviting us into his work within the scope of our daily living. Now there's one last thing I want to say about our witness before we conclude our time together. Many, every single person in this room has some influence. Some person or persons or place where you get to bring your perspective, your vote, your voice. How are we stewarding that? Now, let me just say this, what I am not suggesting or recommending is that we get in there and we take over, that we bring back in the Christian flag or these things, that we, you know, kind of dominate and lead that thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. Influence, Mel Lawrence says, is something that flows in and causes change, usually a force that is imperceptible or hidden. Influencers are people who lead by living in proximity to scores of ordinary people who are looking for some source of wisdom, discernment, power, truth, and other qualities that begin transformative work in their lives. Just think of the effect of massive numbers of believers, Christians, disciples, woke up to their potential to exercise spiritual influence in the schools where they teach, in the boardrooms where they deliberate, in the clinics where they care for people's health, in the churches where they serve, in the assemblies where they legislate, in the homes where they raise children. Now, even in this room, we have some who have greater influence, right? Maybe doctors and nurses, teachers and educators, counselors and social workers, parents and grandparents. Again, how are we stewarding that influence? How are we stewarding that? It seems to me that the church has not known how to steward influence without taking a place of dominance. I think we say, oh, witness, evangelism Influence, but what we're actually talking about is power and control over people. What if we change the narrative and we went into the places where we do have influence to simply put the love of God on display? I went in there with this mindset, I am a servant to these people. Even if I do have a lead position, where am I going to lead them? I want to lead them into the love of God. Not by coercion, not by bullying them, not by taking over, but just by continually, faithfully putting God's great love for me and God's great love for them on display. This is is what God desires for us. This is the great objective of John's gospel, that we would live in such a way that our identity would be so wrapped up in God's great love for us, that we would identify ourselves as one, some those who are radically loved by God, that it would pour from our lives out into the world around us so the world too might experience life deep, overflowing love, belonging and acceptance, forgiveness and healing in the name of Jesus. This is the objective of John's gospel, to bring us deep into the love of God that we would abide and that we would go. You know, Psalm, I think it's Psalm eighty. This is going way back, and I'm actually over my time, so I'm going to finish with this. Psalm 80, we had talked about in the uh, Abide in Me passage how it's this vine, how it's Israel, and how they failed. Psalm 80 is actually also a passage in the Old Testament about a vineyard. The interesting thing about this vineyard is that it puts its roots deep down, and it stretches all the way from the River Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea. And the picture is, is that this vine fills the whole earth. And you could actually see what Jesus is teaching there in John 15 as a reinterpretation of that passage. Jesus is the vine, and he is stretching his love out to the ends of the earth through his branches as they abide in him. That is what God desires for us. Root yourself deep in the love of Jesus and reach out to the world around you. Showing, telling, sharing God's great love.